Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Joanna Bucknell, and you're listening to episode 16 of Talking About Immersive Theatre, or TATE for short, which is T-A-I-T. This is a podcast series, as the title might suggest, about immersive theatre. I go out and about to track down immersive theatre makers and practitioners and performers to chat with them in their spaces and places about the work that they do. Now, I know it's a little bit late this month, but better late than never. So here is episode 16 for you. I'm here at Eating and Drinking in Brighton with Emily Carding uh, from Bright Theatre. Emily, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and about your background? Hi, okay. Well, um, I originally trained at Bretton Hall, which if you've heard of, some people have, some haven't. It no longer exists. It's being demolished as we speak. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, But it, it, you know, it it was up north and it used to be pretty good drama and arts place. Um, Went on to work a few years after that. Didn't do anything particularly interesting, bits and bobs. Mm. Um, And then I became pregnant and had a child. And so I left um, theatre for a long time, Uh actually, and worked. um, I wrote books and created tarot decks. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. I was an artist for a while. Yeah. And then... um, it was it was very much a moment of of inspiration. All this thing burning inside of me when when my daughter Willow reached the age of about ten, I was like, actually, I really want to start mm-hmm. making theatre. Or, or, or I just I want to be an actor. I want to be doing Shakespeare again. It calls you back. It it the did. theatre does that. It tends to drag mm. you back in. And was that initial training you had then very sort of traditional theatre classical training? It it was it was a mix of things. It was it was a the course that I was on was theatre and broadcast. Ah, okay, yeah, um, yeah. But it was it was based it was theatre training. Yeah, it was it yeah. was almost like drama school training, but it had an academic side as well. Of course. Um, and then when I went back into um, into into theatre, I decided I would do a postgrad degree. Yeah. So I looked around for degrees that were around me. I was in Devon at the time, and I ah, found. Okay, yeah. I found a postgrad, an MFA in staging Shakespeare. Oh, it's so unusual to find MFAs actually in this country. There's very few MFAs. It it was a great course. And Mm -hmm. what that did was turn me from an actor writer into a theatre maker. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met the um, the director that I worked with on Richard III. Ah, We created quite a lot. We sort of instantly found that we had a lot in common. So I think over the course of the two years I was there, I went from being quite traditional in my approach to Shakespeare Mm -hmm. to completely messing with it yeah and just taking this as raw material and right what can we do with this what can we mine from this it's so rich yeah um and so we created all kinds of uh, peculiar things um <laughs> because we had the resources and we had the people and we of were sparking off each other so well, we were doing has such good resources as well great. it's actually really funny most people mm. i talk to seem to in terms of immersion interaction and that kind of work mm. are coming out of kind of two very specific places there's a lot of connections with Exeter and there's really? also a lot of connections with Battersea Arts Centre so ah yeah I've heard the good more things. and more people I talk to the mm. more and more I've recognised there's this kind of very sort of centres epicentres of where this kind of work is sort of being generated from which I think is interesting. really interesting I did not realise that PhD in it I think <laughs> there may well be well but Exeter Two things, I think, at least, about Exeter. One is that you have these great resources and that you are encouraged to use them. Mm. So you do what the course provides yeah. you yeah. with. 
but then you meet each other and you just want to make work you've got the resources so you go and make work so yeah. we were at the time doing five plays at a time often yeah yeah completely different <laughs> stuff yeah at that point mostly Shakespeare mm -hmm. and the odd random thing like Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe and yeah. and we're trying to make it as as audience connective as immersive as possible with the resources that we had yes the other thing though is that there's not much traditional stuff happening there so you have to make it happen yourself yes so yeah. exeter i think is is sort of spawning all of these little theater companies who are doing interesting stuff yeah because they're creative they're intelligent people and they want to be working the work isn't there so they're making the work making the work exactly and that is the way forward and i think that's a big difference isn't there i think once you've done some classical training, it is then making that shift into becoming a practitioner, into mm. becoming a theatre maker. Mm. And I think you're right. I think it's really interesting you mentioned that. There is, it is a slightly different way of thinking, and it's a different mm. a approach. And it's the kind of it's the kind of approach that training, like Exeter, provided, as opposed to to. Yeah. I mean, Breton was great, and it was a very creative place. Of course. But what Exeter did, it didn't teach you how to act. No, it didn't, no, it didn't no, try no. to teach you how to act, no. but it, it gave you. Um, so in in you know in that in that way that you wanted drama school for that. Well, I'd already done that, mm -hmm. but it did give you the intellectual and the creative resources, to, raw materials to make work, and it encouraged you to just go yeah. and try stuff and make it. That's exactly and that's, it, and I think a lot of people I've spoken to that work in kind of immersion and that mm. working in kind of this in kind of interactive performance world come from this interesting space where practice meets scholarship and I think mm. the scholarship it clearly is impacting on the way that this kind of work is being made and, and mm. the kind of minds that are producing this kind of work because it's a very different way of thinking mm. about it but in that way of practice through practice and because you're studying it and you have an awareness of the work that's exactly. come before you so you've got that marvellous combination of analysis and then the practical aspect so you can go okay what's already been done great how did they do that great mm -hmm. How can we build on this and push it further? Exactly. exactly. What can we do that's not been done? It's what that would kind be of exciting practice, isn't it? And that's yeah. where I've lived my whole life as a scholar and as a maker because mm. I kind of I'm a practitioner scholar. So again, mm. always sit in that odd place where those two things rub together. Mm. But the good thing about that is, is it doesn't come with some of the pressures that potentially more commercial theatre right. often comes with. So mm. you can be more playful. You can mm. take risks. Yeah. And, and it's a kind of alchemy. You know, yes. It's, it's an alchemical process. What will happen if we mix this and this? Yeah. And because, it will explode. Because you have <laughs> a really keen insight as well as an mm. that coming from that kind of academic space too of how these dramatities operate and why mm. they operate in the ways that they do. I think, again, that, that gives you mm. sort of access to think about these things in, in a slightly different way too. So mm. it's so interesting because literally everyone I speak to has in one form or another a connection with either... Uh, Exeter or a connection with Battersea Arts. It's really interesting. Yeah, really strange. They're coming out of very particular places. Yeah, and you may be able to, to do interested. a little study on that. Yeah, like track, like map it. it. would be really interesting potentially yeah. to do some sort of um, creative form of mapping mm. where these things have come out of. Because of course Punch Drunk yes. have that connection with Exeter as well and pretty yes. much came out of one of the postgraduate courses there too. So It's fascinating, isn't very it? Very interesting. Very interesting. Mm. There must be something. And it's interesting because most people seem to move out of Exeter as well. Yeah. Not a lot of people sort of stay in that location, but then Devon is tricky. It's tricky to live. It's, it's a small to... pond. <laughs> yes. It's a very small pond. Yeah. And it's fine. You can be a big fish in a small pond, but where, where do you go yeah. from there? And I grew up in, in North Devon as well, so yeah. everyone kind of ends up leaving. <laughs> 
I mean, for me, it's, I, I have limited options because, of course, I'm an academic, so I need to be where unis are, and mm. there, there aren't that many universities in Devon and Cornwall. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There is Exeter. I think uh, this is Plymouth. a great place to be. This is a great yes, place. Yes, I love the South Coast. I've completely mm. fallen in love with it here. It's so great. But I'm, I love Brighton. I've always loved Brighton. Mm. <laughs> well, I just moved to St. Leonard's three months ago. Ah, oh, wow. Three okay. How are you finding it? I am loving it. And mm-hmm. I've met, um, there's a lot happening in Brighton. And because I was in the middle of nowhere when I was living in, in Devon, I consider this to be quite local to me now. It's an hour on the train, therefore yeah. it's Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but in, in Hastings in St. Leonard's, there's a lot of talent there and there's a lot of very frustrated theatre makers going, well, nothing much is happening in theatre. There's lots of arts and music. And so yeah, we're all yeah, now, yeah. Start, I've sort of arrived and gone and found these people and we've all found each other and we're starting Wouldn't to make we? things happen so it's great very exciting well, i keep hearing things about hastings actually lots of people seem to be young people keep moving out of london at the moment to hastings so it yeah. seems that it's going to be kind of like a growing it's, a growing scene things are bubbling away yeah so i'm keeping my eye very interesting much on things that. are going to start happening because i have the same thing with portsmouth because i'm mm. based in portsmouth and there's mm. lots of us there's a really developed music scene there's a really developed mm. visual arts scene mm. But the one thing that's kind of lacking at the moment yes, is very similar. the theatre scene. And there's mm. lots of us there, mm. kind of disparate. And we're just starting to connect and pull some of those things together now, trying to find funding, trying mm. to find ways of doing that. But the big thing we've come across, and I don't know if you have the same thing in Hastings, is actually local audiences. Mm. There needs to be yeah. some serious investment in grassroots, because at the moment we'll put really cool things on and no one comes. This is a problem. Yeah. This is a problem. And I think because there isn't the established spaces with the following no to create new work exactly. and to attract people to see new work so you just find the spaces where you can but because that space doesn't have a following you have to really work to get the bums really on the seats and that costs money and that takes time as well to build that kind of yes. relationship in the community yes. with an audience what what we need is to establish um producing theatres yes. studio spaces and producing theatres exactly that will then get a reputation will become known as, as somewhere you can as see interesting see that. things. Exactly. So that even people will be coming out of town to Exactly. See. But it takes a lot of time and I think it yes. takes a lot of investment to get those things to happen. And of yes. course we're all happy to give our time and our love and our energies and our creativity mm. but sometimes I think it needs some really fundamental things kind of in place and some fundamental local support. Some fund fundamental. Yes. Because <laughs> we're the same in Portsmouth we'll do mm. you know, a one-off night that's really exciting mm. and kind of all the local artists who are already involved come but beyond that, but because it's there and it's gone, it's there and it's gone, so mm. it, it's really hard to kind of find a space, and I think until we do find that venue, start to find somewhere where we can actually then build on that and start to mm. build a reputation and start to build a scene, Yes, I think it's going to be very slow, but that requires, I think, some funds, perhaps the council supporting it if they're listening, <coughs> um, or some of the big, I don't know, academic institutions in Portsmouth potentially. Yes, or, or, or a lone rich patron. <laughs> Any of yes, these things would be very welcome at this point. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think we're seeing this more and more along the South Coast, actually. Lots of things kind of bubbling up. Yes. Because I don't know if you find this, but as I get frustrated that I seem to spend half my time in London because mm. to see or engage in something that kind of excites me or that I want to do, I find myself having to go up to London. That's one of the reasons I moved closer. Yeah. But of course, no bugger can afford to live in London now, so they're all living in the outskirts. <laughs> How close can I get? How close can I get? And still afford to and live. And still afford it, exactly. Yeah. And Portsmouth is a bit of a pain because it's an island, so you've got to get off the island before you can oh. even 
get anywhere. So although we're, I think, 60 miles from London, the train takes okay. nearly two hours. So Because oh, no. it stops at every tiny oh, imaginable place. Okay. A lot, and that's the quick train. That's not bad for <laughs> St. Bernard's. It's only an hour and a half into London wow, Bridge. Okay. Yeah, this side, I think things are much quicker. I mean, from Brighton, it's, what, 45 minutes on the train? Something like London, that, yeah. So it's really, really, really quick. Much better transport lengths, I think, this side than the yeah. sort of Southampton. But then Brighton prices are now as high as London yes. prices. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So what are you going to do in some of the areas? <laughs> I know! It's, it was, when, I was, when I was looking at moving, and I thought, let's look at Brighton. Look at Brighton, Brighton is a good arty place. And I was like, hang on a minute. That's more expensive than London. <laughs> and even now, it's just, as it's starting to spread as well, like, Worthing is just as expensive as being oh, in Brighton Lord. and home as well so like it's yeah. spreading out <laughs> everybody's coming to Hastings that's it. Yeah. so is it directly out of your course in Exeter then that you kind of that Bright Theatre came about so Bright Theatre is Colbrin Sigfus.ie is the director's company she'd done stuff under the name Bright Theatre if, if I I think correctly before that okay course. okay um she's from Iceland as you may guess yeah, from yeah. the name um <laughs> And uh, we collaborated on a number of things. I think that the Richard III was, it, it came out of a show called Shakespeare in Hell that we did. Okay. Um, which was an immersive promenade, really, performance, uh, which was a mashup of Shakespeare's work and Dante. Ah, okay. And so we, we and there's a little bit of Marlowe in there too, <laughs> but we took Shakespeare's text and reordered it, sometimes a line, a few words here and there, and, and, and sort of repurposed the words, if you like, to create this journey through the circles of hell. Oh. So Ariel acts as a guide through the circles okay. of hell and takes you through to show you which Shakespearean characters may be in there together mm-hmm. and what they would have to say to each That's other. That's great. <laughs> um, so we had, for example, Juliet and Ophelia were in hell together as suicides. Talking about Absolutely. boys. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we had um, Falstaff and Titus in together in, in, uh-huh. in, in Gluttony. Yes. So yeah, we got yeah. the pies from Titus and Falstaff. Oh, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. <laughs> um, and then we had Richard III and Henry V were in together in the Circle of the Violent. And Henry V yeah. was, was, was very surprised to be there. And Richard's like, okay, how can I rule this place? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there were five. Um, actors yeah. five female actors um in in this show it was all female and we just so we all multi-rolled a lot mm-hmm. um and one of the roles i played was richard and um because of the nature of it, it was very wordy it was definitely one for shakespeare geeks and you had a lot to follow a lot of characters to yeah. follow there were very stereotypical versions of the characters but i enjoyed playing this character so much and i said to to colburn um you know i'd really like to play richard the third properly yeah and I think that independently at some point I'd said how I, I quite fancied doing a one-person show as a challenger at some point. So she took, yeah. <laughs> I think she took this, <laughs> sort of went away and, and came up with this idea of Richard III, a one-woman show, uh-huh. which uses the audience as the other characters. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, this was really a distillation and an evolution from all of our work that we'd done before, but it's the first one that's really gone to a lot of places yeah. and really... Uh, brought attention to the company and to the work say, that we're doing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but have you been yeah. doing it since 2014? Well, place? we um, we created it in 2014, so okay. it was November 2014. Yeah, that um, Colbrin had found us a, a residency at a theatre in Iceland. Oh, so wow. we went to Reykjavik for two weeks. Wow. <laughs> With an open rehearsal process, yeah. So the public were invited to come and participate in our rehearsal Great. process. Um, and we started off with a rough 
cut of the script, which is about two hours worth of, of material. So, and that's heavy weight. And the yeah. idea that the audience would be the other characters. Yeah at the beginning of those two weeks. And by the end, we had pretty much the finish as it stands now. That's great. And we did a work in progress performance um, for for an audience at that theatre with, with book in hand uh, there at the end of those two weeks. And that, that went very well, which was great. That was a really good litmus test because we were obviously performing to an audience in, Eng- in Shakespearean English. Yeah. English was not their first language. No, of course. And there was a really good response. Great. Um, but the first official, there, there was a lot of fat that we cut out at that point. There were some ideas that we had that were clever ideas and completely unnecessary yep. that we cut out to keep it as simple and minimalist as possible. And the show itself actually premiered at Prague Fringe oh, in okay. May 2015. Yeah. And that was our very first performance. How did you find the, that kind of open process with, did you get a lot of input from people coming into that? It was entirely necessary for this kind of piece mm. um, because the audience and the audience's energy is such a huge part of what drives the show and what influences me as an actor because I have to be able to respond to them absolutely intuitively and, and, and in a very fluid way yeah. in character. <laughs> so I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity to yeah. have people coming in. Because, because that's I, one of the most challenging things, I think, with this kind of work is when you're reliant on an audience that way. Because they can do anything. Yes. People do anything. They really do. And they behave, in, you can think you've anticipated every possible. No. But then there's no way to do that. People will always surprise you. People will always do something that you would never have thought of doing. Once you give them permission. Yes. People really like to play. And you have to be ready for that. And I, that's, For whatever they do. Yeah. yeah. That's my big frustration, I mm. think, with some immersive works is they mm. offer you the chance to play, but then when you mm. take it up, they don't really want you to play mm. and they seem to be intimidated by that or you, they don't like it when you deviate mm. and it's like you can't you can't you mm. can't give me an invitation mm. to play and then mm. not let me mm. and I think that's one of the things for me that is the real joy about making this kind of work and going mm. to this kind of work is the risk that comes yeah there is a huge risk <laughs> with with this with this particular piece I also have the the parallel challenge of keeping. I do have to keep the story on track. It has, yeah, and and I have to keep within. Often, if it's if it's a festival, if I'm not just booked for a theatre, but if I'm booked for a oh, festival, yeah, I have an hour slot. Tight. So <laughs> this show can run much longer than that if I let it. So I have to keep it on track. Um, so the audience participation in this, it's immersive in the sense that you're drawn into the story. You're given a character. Yeah. And there are certain points where there's a freedom to ad-lib with me and chat. And then it gets to a point where because Richard himself is no longer making, bringing you in. Mm-hmm. then. But I think audiences are savvy, you know, they're very energy sensitive. And so yeah. they know when they're like, oh, hang on, this is this is shifted. Shifted, yeah. Um, so when you do get disruptive behaviour, it's because there's a difference between playing along and helping the story and something that, that then becomes disruptive even if they're just taking the playing a little bit yes, too far yes, yes, so it's yes. my job to let them and then keep them under control yeah, yeah. I mean I did once have a lady Anne that I had to kill early for instance <laughs> it's the only way to get her to shut up yes yeah she was heck- she was heckling me in character if Lady Anne was from Plymouth which right. she was okay at that point. okay okay um <laughs> sat in the front row with a glass of wine saying you'll have you you'll be next I told you you'll have you <laughs> Um, 
I had a lady answered on my knee once. That was fine. I let her sit on my lap until the point where I had to kill her. Um, <laughs> had somebody in Prague brought a dog in in their handbag, which was extraordinary. So wow. when I had the line dogs bark at me when I hauled by them, I could give it to this dog. It, it's wonderful for me as a performer to have this different energy to play off against. Yeah. Um, every night. I'm very interested in taking the ideas that we've developed with Richard now that I've been touring with it for a couple of years mm -hmm. and pushing it further yeah. and allowing for more freedom and giving the audience more agency and more freedom to let things veer off. So that will be a future project. I have a script. Yeah. It's again a question of funding and time. Of course. Um, but I have a script for a one-woman Hamlet which I'd like to develop along those lines. Oh, and much more along the lines of a conversation sort of built around the, the soliloquies and vaguely the story, but really inviting the audience to be those characters and yeah. and discussing the, the ideas in there with me. Yeah. Because Richard's a, a tyrannical character. Yes, He's yes, complex, absolutely. And I absolutely. like to bring a human being yeah. to people. <laughs> but at the same time, I can, in character, put people in their place yes. and keep everything running. Because you have the structure to be able to kind of do that. And I, I find that mm. as well. It's with this kind of work when you allow that kind of freedom actually it's very tightly usually structured there are mm. structures that are smooth and tight and mechanics that operate mm. in specific ways and actually that's what makes things it's weird the tighter the yeah. rules and the mechanic the more freedom mm. it seems to give performers to play and the more freedom that seems to give the audience yeah. to play as well and the audience do feel and it's in, it's really interesting to watch but the audience instantly start relating to each other as the characters mm. they've got name plaques so they can all see who each other is yeah and so they get quite put out. It's, it's interesting, there's a bit where, um, I don't think, you know, I'm really spoiling people <laughs> since this play's been around for like 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we pause for a minute? It's fine, it's okay. fine, we can carry um, on. It's all good. <laughs> I won't be noisy. Don't worry. Well, there's, there's this bit where um, Richard asks Buckingham to kill the princes. You know, yeah. Richard's just been crowned and he's like, yes, but I, I, is this gonna last? <laughs> This is only really going to last, you know, Prin Prince Edward's still around, so this isn't really going to last if, you know, the princes were to be killed off. Killed off. Are you with yeah, me? exactly. Um, now, I've had quite a lot of times, and Buckingham's quite involved in the story, yes. I'll get to that point, and too many times you have a Buckingham who you can tell is about to go, oh yeah, all right, I'll go do that. Now, in, but Buckingham in the play, at that point, just says, can you give me a minute to think about it? He doesn't say, no, I won't, but he says, yeah. I'm going to need some time to think about that. Yeah. But I have to cut them off before they go, oh yeah, okay, I'll go and kill them because I've got to keep the story on Exactly, track. exactly. So the only people who've ever come up to me afterwards and said, well, I wanted to participate, but you kept cutting me off, mm -hmm. was the people who've played Buckingham because I have to keep the story. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think it would be very interesting to take a Shakespeare and completely see whether the audience could lead it in another direction. It would be the next stage on from this. Do you think established stories kind of help in immersive and interactive work because the audience come with at least some understanding or some knowledge of the story or some knowledge of the character. Not all of them do. I mean, many people will come and see this who have never seen a Shakespeare play, mm -hmm. uh, who think that Shakespeare's not for them yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people don't know Richard III actually as well as you might think. Mm -hmm. 
and they, they can't, they're like, worried, should I know the play first? No, absolutely not. Like, no. <laughs> what it actually does is make it very clear for everybody. We've cut out the characters that you don't necessarily need to know to know to, to get the story. Yeah. Because we're focusing on Richard's story. Yeah, of course. Um, and that's why it works so well for this play, because unlike Hamlet, Richard is the one who drives the story along, and his story yes. is the interesting part. Nobody cares about Richmond. <laughs> Richmond's dull as dishwater. So... Um, so that's so the fact that it's an established story for those who do know, it's interesting the ones who do know it say well perhaps it wouldn't be for those people who don't know the text but they're saying that from an angle of, of people who do know the text they're like well yes. I understood it because I know the text no I've had many people come up to me who've never seen it as Shakespeare before let alone Richard III and mm. say well I understood yeah well, every of course word. Um, but for those who do know the text or who want to get to know Shakespeare better, it puts you into the story. Yeah. And what better perspective can there be mm-hmm. than being personally involved and implicated in what's happening? Well, I think that's what's so interesting. It's one of the things as audience that excites me is that access to the inside or the interior mm. of these fictive worlds rather mm. than kind of being sort of an observer. Mm. And for me, that was always something very ludicrous about... Those people are really there in that space, yeah. breathing, doing those things. I'm really here, and they're pretending I'm not here. Yeah. And for me, that's it's always very odd. Isn't been it? odd. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, how did this? Obviously, I know historically how this happened. Yeah. But modern theatre, yeah, as opposed to early modern or postmodern, is mm-hmm. very strange. Yes. Modern theatre puts the audience in the darkness, ignores and the them. action in the light, and you're not allowed to. No, no. But what's what I found really interesting, and really I think that from from Cole and I studying um, at the Globe and and so on, as we were able to do as part of our MFAs, we got uh, residencies at the Globe. That's fabulous. That's amazing. We were able to take the early modern aesthetic in which Shakespeare's work was created. Because yeah, it wasn't created in that dark and ignore it the audience It was created space. for theatres like the Globe, but the yeah. audience is right there. You're sharing light with them. His characters talk directly to the audience and address mm-hmm. them. And in, in Shakespeare's time, we're pretty sure they would have talked back and heckled and Absolutely. said, no, don't do it, or who's behind you, or... <laughs> yes. The audience at that time, this was their entertainment, they were completely invested in what yeah. was happening as if, as if they were there. And I think that through the postmodern principles that we're using in our very, very meta production, yeah. we've got much closer to creating something that, that feels truer to Shakespeare's yeah. work yeah. than something you might go see at the National. Exactly. And I think it's, that's really interesting. It's actually in some respects, and this is one of the first things I tell my students, I'm like, actually, engagement, interaction, participation, all of these things were part mm. of early performance before you were sat in the dark passively yeah. watching something. And of yeah. course, because that has become such a dominant mode and just sort of stayed as kind of like the dominant mode of theatre very much in, in England anyway, and in mm. the UK. Um, I think they forget sometimes that actually this is such a narrow, singular part of the theatrical experience. And it's... Yeah. There's so many other kind of rich things happening beyond that. When you look at some of the work that's coming in terms of emerging out of other contexts, so coming out of Carnival, coming out of those other places, it makes much more sense, actually. Mm. And it's much more about performance, I think, than necessarily about theatre, in the ways yes. that we might think of, kind of theatre. Yes. <laughs> well, it's about giving people something real yes. in a virtual age. Yeah. 
when we're all so detached from things screen, on our screen, screens screen. and just to be in somebody's face or take them by the hand and really talk with them yeah. rather than at them. Well, I think our contemporary experience distances us in so many ways and through mm. so many forms that we... It's nice, isn't it, sometimes just to take have a space and take that moment and be allowed to be in the moment, actually mm. living in the moment mm. and aware of doing that. And I think mm. that's one of the things that I like about immersive-style performance. It brings me nicely actually to ask, I ask everybody I talk to about this, mm. the word immersive itself is mm. hugely problematic. It kind of means, it gets slapped on every possible thing because it's become kind of like a producer's little little dream word that sort oh, really? of draws oh, okay. audiences in. They want to attach it to kind of everything. But <sighs> and as an academic, I find the word really difficult because it kind of means nothing and means everything all at the same time. So I wanted to ask you <laughs> what you think about the term immersive and how it might relate to your work. It's interesting. So you look, you look at things like Punch Drunk, who are basically the big name in what we call immersive theatre. And what Absolutely. they do is huge. And, and these companies that take over a whole building. So they're creating a world yeah. in, in, and then they're bringing you into that world. Yeah. And they're vast and expansive and... And it's huge. Huge. And it has a budget. Massive. But what it's doing, essentially, what that means, immersive, is that you as an audience member are being supposedly immersed in this world. And they yeah. do it with a big budget and a big building. Yes. So what we've done with ours is is think, okay, so how can we bring people into a world without physically creating a world? How do we weave this world in any space? This show can work in any space. It could work in here. Absolutely. It would be a bit cramped if I had enough people, but <laughs> it's how do I... And, her, and Cole as a director, how how do we, just through the words and myself as an actor, really, and very little else, mm -hmm. create an immersive piece? No wandering around a space, no creating the building. Space is important, it feeds into it energetically, but we're not transforming the space at all. And create a world just energetically bringing people yeah. in just as an invitation. Mm -hmm. What is the, what is the, I think that we really are exploring that question, what is, what is immersive theatre by yeah. breaking it down to its most distilled In, point. It isn't it about an invitation. Yeah, and it's that invitation. Yeah. So the, the, the play starts, um, provided the space is conducive, there's somewhere for the audience to wait outside. I am in the space, in character. If I have the time, I'm in space and character an hour beforehand, you know, I, I like to mm -hmm. be in, in, it doesn't happen in festivals, of course. <laughs> no, there's someone but, else in there in space an hour before you. <laughs> but as the audience are coming in, I greet them in character, I'm improvising with them, I get, I, as I'm giving them the name plaque with their character on, I'm saying, ah, oh, dear brother, how are you? Mm -hmm. Great to see you, how are you feeling today? Oh, my, well, let me show you to your seat. So they're instantly in that world. And, yeah. I'm, and all it is is... is an invitation to yeah. me, bringing yeah. them. Here is here is our world. This is it. And I agree. For me, it's exactly the same. It's that it's about invitations, and it's mm. about the different ways and the different techniques that you can use to offer it, to open mm. it, and to kind of maintain it. Then once you've kind of established, and mm. it's about a relationship. Mm. And you start that relationship in the same way you start any relationship. It's often tentative, but you mm. have to make the right. Yeah. Invitation. And for that span of an hour, these people, whether it's an audience of a dozen or an audience of 90, I've done both. Mm -hmm. They are my brothers, lovers, yeah. uncle, whatever. Mm -hmm. the, my soldiers, uh, my enemies. 
those people for that span of time are that to yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, that's immersive. They they have become part of that world yeah. that I've invited them into. And it's that, isn't it? And there is there's huge risk involved, not just for the audience, but I think there's big risk as a performer when you open up that invitation to play. It was terrifying, uh, absolutely um, <laughs> terrifying. Because although we had, although we had the open rehearsal process, there's like a couple of people at a time, and they were coming to help exactly with rehearsal with that frame of mind as well, which is great. And I had them to play with, but they, they were behaving and they gave feedback. It's nowhere near the same as a wild audience. <laughs> No. From wherever, anyone, any, from anywhere in the world. I mean, we started off in Prague. It's an international French festival, and it's also full of performers, and they're pretty crazy people. Yes, know? absolutely. So they play the hardest usually. They're usually the most difficult to manage. Which I find is my fellow immersive yeah. practitioners. So the first shows, I was terrified, and was, but that's great. I like to be on the edge of things and pushing it. Um, but as it happened, our first shows, um, the, the very, very first show got the best review I think I've seen for anything ever. That's great. Um, and then that year at Prague Fringe, we won actually all of the awards that mm -hmm. were on offer, which was yes. incredible. I mean, I'm still two years later reeling from that. It's like, like all of them? <laughs> Colburn put a, a, a public post on my Facebook page. And we we were thinking, you know, running up to it, it'd be nice to be nominated for something. Yes, yeah. You know, of it's off the, it's yeah, we've only yeah, just started. It's it almost like great. still a work in progress. We're still developing this. It'd be yeah, nice yeah, to be yeah. nominated for an award. And she posted on my wall, we won all of the awards. And I thought she's exaggerating, like, yay, all the things. All of the things. Like, no, really. No, actually, all of them. <laughs> all of them. Which was extraordinary, a huge honour. Um, it was the first time that had ever happened. Um, so what we're like, it? okay, we've got something here that people are connecting yes. with. We're giving people an experience. Well, it's a huge validation of the work, isn't it? That's the thing. It's a massive, massive validation yeah, of the massive. form, but mm. also of kind of the, your approach to it as well. Yeah, because that, that first show, I mean, I've performed in many different kinds of spaces now, but that first show was in the back room of a cafe. Mm -hmm. My performance space, the stage itself, and there's all this stuff worked into the performance with a wheelie office chair where I can wheel from one side of the space to the other. Well... My performance space was only a, a few feet. You know, I barely had room to move. <laughs> yeah. And it was raised and it was end on, which is like our least ideal setup for this works very well in the round, works very well in traverse. Those course, first shows yeah. were in this confined space wow. where people were packing into this space. And yet it's something about that experience mm -hmm. that people really really seem to connect with you know, Why do you think people sure. are so and I've asked this to everyone as well, and mm. I, I don't have the answer at all. <laughs> But there was initially, from the critics, there was this kind of reticence of this will be a flash in the pan. But actually what audiences have shown us is there is a real long-term, I think, commitment and hunger and real desire to engage with this kind of work. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on why you thought that yeah. might be, why people are so excited and engaged in this kind of work. I think... As, as as I said earlier, one of the points is, I, well, I think that we're starved. Mm. I think that um, in the 21st century, we're <laughs> what is this hunger that drives us to constantly be on screens? And people say it's a disconnect. It isn't no, at all. No, no, no. It's completely about connection. And the reason that people are constantly on social media or whatever, it's not about distance. It's about connection. Connecting. They are desperately thirsty, starving. For connection, yep. for energetic connection, 
in their lives. But and so when you can give them to, when you can give them that in a visceral, real way, when yeah. you can reach out as a character from from history or from fiction and take their hand and look them in the eyes and give them real feelings. Yeah. That's gonna that's addictive. That's like this yeah. is something real. This is what I've been hungry for. I've yeah. been looking for it here in this screen. But actually, what what you're giving me with this the theatre, or or this this piece of art that that you're bringing me into, that's what I'm hungry for. Mm. And they realise that they've been lacking in that, because the theatre grew out of the roots of magic. It grew from this need to connect exactly from with ritual, the with the from... divine. Exactly. And if it's done right. We are the priests and priestesses giving people Absolutely. a divine experience, a transcendent experience. I agree. And I think because we operate, especially in this kind of work, we invite people into a liminal space and that liminal mm. space is radically charged with that kind of potential. And that kind of potential has a buzz and it, it has this energy, but it's so fragile. Mm. But also for me, it's what the theatre is about. Theatre should be about liveness. It's the one thing that makes us distinct from other forms of our other forms of media in our kind of in our contemporary experience anything can happen like anything literally in in that mm. moment where you're in the room sweating breathing living together for mm. real in that actual moment anything is possible and anything mm. can happen and for me that's yeah and sometimes things i can't something divine yeah. about that and spiritual about that and i have to find ways of teaching that to undergraduates which mm. i have found a huge challenge is how to because you know it's like when you've been doing it for a while you just get a rhythm because although you have all that classical training it doesn't help with in the set obviously you know it helps in terms of delivering story it helps in terms of developing character but the moment you have those people in that room that might behave in any way mm. it doesn't actually help with that mm. that comes from i think practice it comes from experience and it comes from an i think a natural aptitude to want to Mm. engage people in that way because a lot of people mm. a lot of performers I work with find it terrifying and do not enjoy <laughs> that I wonder whether that's you know we should take our work seriously but we shouldn't take ourselves seriously yes and I wonder whether and I think we've all been guilty of this at some point about being serious so taking our art so seriously <laughs> yes. but if they do if they say this in that that might ruin my scene exactly no it's not about you it's about them them exactly. if it wasn't for them you wouldn't be there no that's why we do what it what use would it be performing to yourself you know beautifully and perfectly you could do the most beautiful perfect Hamlet <laughs> in a in your bedroom on yeah. your own and it would mean nothing because nobody was there to experience to, to receive it, it. exactly um, so do you, it's for them that you're doing it so yeah. work with what they give you and it's hard to teach it's hard and it comes with experience mm. I think mm. I haven't, I've, I've tried many different ways to teach this to undergraduates but I think I'm nowhere near finding a way that gives them that kind of confidence it is confidence it is confidence and that's a very it? difficult <laughs> thing to teach that can yeah. only really come from experience it, it's interesting one of the things that it's my particular area, one of my particular areas of interest, and I'm currently writing a book. About should be writing a book. About this. <laughs> well, we all should be writing a book. <laughs> uh, um, it's what I wrote my um, wrote my thesis on. Actually, is is the esoteric. Well, I'm looking at the esoteric content of Shakespeare's work and how that can ah. be applied practically. Yeah. Because as a magical practitioner and a theatre practitioner. 
the training is the same. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at energetic ways of, of training and connecting with yourself and, and having not only your your body and your mind but also your spirit in alignment and I think that that could mm -hmm. really help people yes. if they do the kind of exercises that work with energy because we are working with energy yeah. um, and it is about how we use energy and performance that that will help us to work with that connection what is that connection if it's not energy what are we if we're not actually just energy, energy. and it's intuitive and I find this when I'm performing it's mm. you learn very quickly when you make this kind of work how to because mm. you've made the invitation you've invited them mm. to engage with you you've invited them into your space and you've invited to take mm. responsibility in some respects for what's going to happen to them mm. while they're here with you in that moment and I think it's just about you get very good at reading that energy and mm. feeling that energy and mm. and knowing how to kind of respond and shift and change that energy and mm. that's hard to teach <laughs> it is hard to teach <laughs> you need access to it to mm. play with it and there aren't many you, spaces i think you have to, to try that. and t train people in just just the basic levels of awareness of energy yes and i and wonder if maybe there. the training for this perhaps we could look in other places mm mindfulness might be an interesting way of engaging in some of those things and I think there's there's so many possibilities I think mm. for thinking about how we start to develop this because I don't think this kind of work is going anywhere mm. and I, I think it's going to build and it's going to become a kind of a field in its own right yeah. and but I think the, these but the things more will eventually it, build around the it. more of it there is the yeah. more good stuff there'll be and the bad exactly. stuff there'll be as oh yeah well. of course so we want the good stuff yes. and how are we going to teach people to create and sharing that, that practice. That's the other thing at the moment. There's mm. very few. I'm working on something that will hopefully help with this. I don't want mm. to say too much, but I'm working on something. Because there's not a lot of spaces at the moment for us to share. Mm. Academics and practitioners who operate in this field. It's kind mm. of, we're still all working fairly disparately. And I think... And there's actually, I mean, we're rare creatures, the yes. academic and practitioner. We are. <laughs> because there's really quite, quite a conflict between academics and practitioners. Well, I constantly often. feel that I never quite sit within one or the other and mm. I constantly feel like I'm sliding between the gaps of funding, mm. support, all of those things. There's often mm. a bit of a suspicion that comes from practice about the scholarship and uh. the scholarship often doesn't understand the practice either. Yeah. And people say things like, well, I'm not going to pay for you. We're not going to pay for you to go and see work. Attending performance work isn't research. And you're like, huh? <laughs> what? That's like telling a writer not to read books. Ex exactly. Not utter bollocks. But it's Am this whole kind of... Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's this constant friction. <laughs> but actually, I found the podcast has massively helped with that because... Good. Because the moment people realise that you're a practitioner and you operate in that way too, there's mm. the suspicion kind of slips away a little bit, which I think is nice. But there mm. is still this strange relationship between the academy... Mm. and practice mm. I think it's going to take oh, it's going to take a really long time for that because you know we've only been doing practice as such for 20 years it's kind of like a recognised right. thing and that's new isn't it in terms of academia yeah, things new. move slowly mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it takes a year pretty much to get a journal article from being written to being published so and that's considered quick mm. so in scholarship I think in the next sort of 40, 50 years, these things will start to firm themselves up. But for now, I've got students who are attending this kind of work, who are hungry, who are excited, mm. but they want to know process. They want to know, well, how would I mm. even think about starting to make something like this? And of course, mm. they go to Punch Drunk, they see these huge, yeah. vast 
budgets and they think oh I couldn't possibly and that was it we had zero budget absolutely and and I think (laughs) there's a lot of creativity that stems from we want to make something we've got no money no money no space (laughs) maybe a little space but how do we make that work as an aesthetic and actually what we have is something that's very punk yeah I think absolutely yeah um I always say that I'm like always having to work with no budget, no space, no nothing, no time makes you extremely uh, resourceful. Yeah, you have to be inventive. Yeah, and actually I find that's when exciting things happen and strange things bubble out of having to work that way. And all of the things that are aspects of our show that you could look at and say, well, that's because they've got no money or have meaning behind them. Yeah. You know, the fact that Richard's crown is made from paper. Well, this is the hollow crown. This is the meaningless thing that went once he got, well, once he actually achieves it, dissolve. he realises yeah. that this means nothing. Um, the, the, the handwritten name cards. I love that. <laughs> it's, it's just breaking everything down to its most basic elements. I don't have a bunch of people to play messengers, so I use a mobile phone and I'm receiving messages from people and I'm reading out these messages that I'm receiving on my mobile phone. Well, that's instantly relatable to everybody. Absolutely. So, yes, it makes you, it makes you resourceful, it but does. it also makes it very, very human. There isn't all of this other stuff in the way. No. It's just a human-on-human contact. Well, it boils down to exactly what we started talking about, which is this, the invitation mm. and the way that the invitation is then couched mm. and offered. And I think that's exciting and like you said it sits in that kind of place that is almost divine I think I'm about to hopefully write an article where I call it becoming atlas you have to hold (sighs) the world and keep it there Mm. (laughs) and you're responsible for that as the performer you hold good you have to hold the space you hold the world in your hands yeah (laughs) you do that world that you've created you You hold it in the moment and you at any moment it can be shattered and it can be broken and it can dissolve. Mm. And in some respects, you sit at the centre of that as a performer who operates in that space. And that's mm. terrifying and hugely exhilarating and exciting, I think, all rolled into one. Absolutely. So, are there any times you can think of, uh, since you've been doing the show, where things have potentially, where things went wrong and things really dissolved? Or has it always... It's never dissolved. Okay. I've never let it dissolve. That's good. <laughs> um, it is good. God, touch wood Because sometimes, somewhere. you know, um, sometimes something <laughs> just happens and, you know, you just, there's nothing can be done. I mean, there was that. No, you just have to keep focus. Yeah. Crazy shit has happened. Yes. Like I said, I had this lady, Anne, who, uh, there's a little bit written on the back of each card that tells you what your attitude is to Richard and just a tiny bit of information. She yeah. clearly read that. She knew she hated me. So she really took that on board. She had a couple of glasses of wine and uh-huh. she was sat there in the front row. So even the scene she wasn't in, she was sat saying, oh, look, don't trust him, don't trust him, which was really interesting. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And I allowed it to an extent, but I, had to ke- I just kept it under control. Very recently, I have one of the few props that I have is a wine glass. Mm-hmm. And um, towards the end of the play, where it's much less, there's much less um, interaction and imp- and improvising. It's very, very dark and focused by this point. Yeah. And I'm about to see the ghosts of all the people I've killed. And I actually invite the person who's dead by this point, who plays Clarence, to fill me a bottle of wine. And then as I see him, I'm like, oh. So the audience starts to get the idea that something strange is happening. So he fills this glass of wine. Um, and 
and I drink real wine in the show. So <laughs> it's the one real thing. So however much wine Clarence pours is how much wine I'm drinking. You have in to that, drink, yeah. That last 20 minutes of the show. Clarence fills a really, really large glass of wine. This is the last show that I did. And I get to the ghost scene where I'm, I'm looking around and I see all the people that I've killed. And then I, I, there's this thing that I do where I, I slam down my glass on the table with my hand over the top of it so that the red wine will come up onto my hand and it will look like blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This glass I borrowed from a friend of mine in Exeter two years ago uh-huh. and has been touring all around with me oh, and has okay. survived perfectly uh-huh. well. Uh-huh. And this was the last show I was going to do with this glass. I was actually going to give it back because I'm going down to the southwest next. Ah, so okay, like, I'll finally okay, be able to give this okay, glass. Yeah. Well, I think that this glass had decided that it was done. it was going out in glory. Okay. It didn't want to go sit back in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah. I slammed this glass down and the stem shattered and glass went everywhere. Oh, no. Well, okay. I'd be like, oh, God. So I just stayed with it. I've got this. I've still got the glass, but I can't <laughs> I put it down. I can't put it down. So I down the wine this whole glass of red wine and carry on with the scene but 50% in character <laughs> doing the scene the way I always do at this point Richard is completely breaking down and at the same time looking down and say okay so there's glass all on my chair in my crutch there's glass oh, on the floor no. I've got to drag myself across that later when I'm dying so 50% completely doing the scene completely in focus keeping it all going and half of me yeah. is health and safety assessing Going-ing. the situation oh, God. <laughs> So I do that scene, I get to the next bit where I'm interrupted by Ratcliffe. And then, so then I sort of come to, come back to my senses, you know, I'm talking to Ratcliffe, I, I have a gun in my hand, I put the gun down. And then as I'm talking to Ratcliffe, in character, because this has happened to Richard. Yes, exactly. It was in an unexpected moment, thing right for Richard, then, so he's yeah. also dealing with it. Yeah. So I just deal with it as Richard. There was, I think, somebody in the audience who, who ran the venue who was about to come forward and help, but I stayed so much in focus... It's that energetic control that I'm talking about. Interrupt that. It's just an energetic thing. There is a field that you don't interfere with. You've got to keep that focus. So I, in character, I don't want glass in me. So I'm just in character, (laughs) dejectedly picking the glass out of my crotch. Yeah. And then I just avoid the bit on the floor (laughs) where the broken glass is when I drag myself across it, dying later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, thankfully, no, the show has never completely That's dissolved. wonderful. It's just in the 60s and the 70s when, uh, like, the Living Theatre were making this kind of work, like, the really, really early mm. uh, kind of Schechner pieces and those sorts of things, some mm. horror stories from that time. Um, mm. There was one time in Germany when they were doing Paradise, uh, mm. Living Theatre, and the audience picked them up and threw them into the river. They took them outside screaming and threw them all, all the performers into the river. And so sometimes when you give... I've been very lucky. I was going to say that I must I've have done. Some there's been some close stories. calls. You know, when Edinburgh <laughs> Fringe in 2015, I was in a chapel of a church, with a curtain separating me from the church. Ah, okay. Um, and I'm doing the play, and you can hear there's somebody really upset shouting coming through the church. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, they want to be let into the chapel. I think. They were oh. a homeless person or, or something. Okay, yeah. They wanted to come into the chapel. They wanted to light a candle. This was something that they did, you know? Yeah. Well, one of the audience got up, bless them. And I was preparing to deal with this in You're character. Like, yeah, I'm going to have to manage this well, situation. Well, no, but I thought I'm going yeah, well, to have to do it in character because I... Because I'm in my, character. <laughs> because, as you say, you've got the world in your hands. Yes. 
So maybe it's just a piece of theatre, but for me right now, that is the world. Yeah, and so I in have your got head, you're suddenly keep, thinking, right, how can I keep... Oh, I'm the king, so I'm just going to have to try... A member of the audience went out beyond the curtain, dealt with him very gently. And so I was able to continue. And then you make a little side comment if you can, if you're in a place uh-huh. within the play where you're <laughs> able to still make these little witty comments because yeah, my yeah. Richard is very witty. To incorporate that for a moment into your world. Yes. You can't deny the things that are happening. No. Even outside of the bubble that you've created. No, of actually, course not, because the they're there. You're happening in, in the world, even if it's outside your space at that point, is happening to you. Indeed. Your character. Yeah. There was, there's, there's some moments where it just works beautifully. Things outside that there was one where I'm saying you know um the king is dead or or the king is ill and an ambulance went past and I went oh that's efficient you know (laughs) you just you bring it all there are so many beautiful there can be so many beautiful happy accidents I think with this kind of work especially like Mm. with you as well we work in kind of spaces that are not usually performance spaces very Mm. often and so you have to be prepared sometimes to let that in or to absorb that in what you're doing but I think that's that again just adds to this sense that it's visceral that it's It's real real. it's real yeah and I think that's that's really exciting but also I think that breakdown of cultural rules can sometimes lead as well to Mm. extremely deviant behavior from audiences but I think people are much more conservative now than in the 60s and 70s actually aren't they (laughs) It's in in the same up. London run that the ambulance noise happened in, it was a really fascinating experience to me. The the um, the producer for that run, because the only time I've had a producer, but she she saw me in Edinburgh and she wanted to bring me to her London space, which is a new and exciting space called Draper Hall in Elephanton yes, Castle. Yes, yes, yes. It used to be um, a community hall. Yes. Now what she did was really interesting. She introduced a scheme called Ticket Forward, so people could buy an extra ticket and that would go to a homeless person if they wanted yes, it. They yes, would I've put their names on a list. It's a really good idea. And um, and then those who were on the list who'd expressed an interest would come. So I would be performing to your general, your normal middle class audience, some very working class people, and a smattering of the of the homeless people from that oh, area. Yeah. Some of them had never seen any kind of theatre before. Yeah. And I had somebody come up to me at the end of one performance saying, you know, I always thought Shakespeare's not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you think it's just, you know, it's all going to be far, 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 far. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't think I was going to understand anything, but <laughs> yeah. I'm so really pleased that you translated it. Uh-huh. I was like, no, no, no that, no, was, that Shakespeare. was Shakespeare. It's just but it, the way it's delivered. Yeah. It's more and I think because I do literate, especially towards the beginning with a few ad-libs here and there, if occasion calls for it, mm-hmm. That that just intersperses with the actual text, and and because they're in the world, yeah, they're feeling it, even if they don't necessarily understand every single word, but they're feeling what's happening. And they know. So, that was a real privilege, actually. Yeah, well, a real I think, privilege. I think this this kind of work can create that, and I think that's mm. again one of the things that I I really love is this. You spend real moments with strangers sometimes, and end up having. These incredible, kind of privileged, beautiful it is, relationships. Whether they're fleeting, because I take this audience on a journey with me, and Richard's journey is that's an intense journey. It is intense. <laughs> Within an hour, you know, all these murders, <laughs> murder your family, achieve the crown, completely break down, die, die. <laughs> and I find 
often at the end of most shows, people I've never met before will come and give me a hug afterwards. Mm -hmm. Because they've shared that experience with exactly. me. And We've had an intimate, energetic connection for that mm -hmm. span of time. And they remember it afterwards and go and tell people. Well, Sometimes even the people who have been told about it by people talk about it to people because it's just something that seems to send out these ripples. Well, you feel it in your bones and, and it, it touches you in a really different way because you lived through it. Mm. You didn't just watch it. It's an experience. Yeah. It creates a whole new experience and that, that stays with you, I think, mm. in ways that potentially just watching things doesn't. So back to the question about what makes something immersive, I would say it's about being immersed in the energy of it, mm -hmm. building and whatever else is, you know, coincidental or fancy, you know, extra. Yeah. But the, the immersive nature of it comes from that energetic immersion. Yes. That makes it, that transforms it from being something you saw yeah. to something you experienced. Yeah. That, I think that is going to be a really nice place to start to wrap things up. Thank okay. you so much for coming to talk to me. So if people would like to book the show, how do they go about doing that? Oh, please do book. <laughs> um, the show is on uh, from May the 17th yeah. to the 21st at the Duke Box, um, which used to be behind a pub called the Iron Duke. The Iron Duke is now... Sweet Susanna or something else, yeah, but it's yeah, three it's Waterloo Street. Ones, but you can go online and book through uh, the Sweet Jukebox website or yep. through the Brighton Fringe website. Great. Um, or if you go to www.onewomanrichard.co.uk, you can see a lot more information about the show, and there's also links there for our various different venues where you can book tickets brilliant because it's going obviously it's carrying on beyond the brighton fringe festival so people can catch you this is the never-ending tour myself Elsewhere. and the director <laughs> joke about this we're just going to keep touring with this and also we're taking it into schools so if there are any schools or universities interested in Great. booking this show they can contact us through the website. Brilliant. And so we'll because be it's a great tool later. for education. Exactly. <laughs> and to make it real for people. And what's next for you guys then? Are you working? Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier potentially about Hamlet. Have you started sort of well, working on that? Or are you too busy touring? This is very interesting. So, so my very next gigs are actually... Um, I'm glad I could talk to you today because I'm just off down to the southwest. I've got... Um, doing the Acorn in Penzance. Yeah for one night and um, Glastonbury Abbey and then after Brighton wow. Fringe uh, we're doing Dumfries and Galloway Festival in June great which is very nice it's beautiful up there I was up there recently gorgeous um, July I've got off for uh, in case my agent maybe gets me something we'll see <laughs> or a little break but maybe write my book yes exactly um, August we're back in Ed Fringe for a week great um, we we got an invitation a few weeks ago to perform in Slovakia wow. in September. Brilliant. So well, it's good actually because I've got people who listen all over the world. We've got people oh, great. Who listen in Hong Kong, Vietnam, uh, Australia, America, pretty much. Well, we're happy to go everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> if, if people want to pay <laughs> our flights. Um, we were in New York last year. Great. And then after that, I think with this show, we'll be focusing on taking this show into schools and universities and trying to get that going get program, so, so get yeah. this education side of things moving um, and then we'll be looking to develop Hamlet but what's it what's interesting is that I've met a group of people where I am in St Leonard's or in Hastings um, and I've actually just been cast as Hamlet in, ah. in 
in a production which will be a big project in Hastings starting in November Great. with a very uh, with a week of talks and workshops What's and stripped down performance. But there's no information on this. It's, we're literally just okay. starting with this now. But if people keep an eye on St Mary in the Castle okay. in Hastings, this is where we're going to be based. Brilliant. Um, well, this is all very new. Um, <laughs> so in, in November... Um, from the 13th to the 20th there will be this Hamlet week and that will be the beginning of a big project that will become a large immersive piece actually interesting well I would definitely be trying to come down to that then Um, where we will be taking (laughs) over the whole building and filling it with art installations and all kinds in the spring I should be coming along (laughs) hopefully but we're we're going to need funding and so on so we're currently funding applications and all of that but that's that's very exciting so perhaps what will happen is that the solo Hamlet for Bright Theatre may sort of be a spin-off from that if I can get Colburn down to work with me to develop Great. that because it seems very it's very interesting that this Hamlet is happening when I was going to when be developing that it. other Hamlet yes. um, and this is not Col isn't involved in this in this she's based in Edinburgh okay okay so I think that what might happen is a collaboration between yeah. Bright Theatre and this company that we're establishing now to to have this smaller piece that can then travel around and yeah yeah and uh, and work in a similar way to Richard. Great. And do you have Twitter? Can people kind of follow you on Twitter? Bright Theatre has has a Twitter account, and Great. I do Emily Carding. Um, and we're both very easy to find because Bright Theatre is Bright Theatre. Emily Carding, Emily Carding. <laughs> I don't call myself anything weird. <laughs> no, online. no, 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 exactly. And same we're way. Bright Theatre and myself both have Facebook pages also, and of course Brilliant. there's the One Woman Richard website, and Colburn has a director's page as well. And they're the best. Is social media usually a really good way to kind of yeah. keep up with news and find out what you're up to and what you're doing? Yeah, all of good. our, um, all of the venues that we're visiting will be on the website. But also, I am a total Facebook whore and Twitter. So if you just follow us, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, and we uh, we are not scant in sharing news. It's so much easier than trying to maintain mailing lists and things. I find that if people just follow you on Twitter and Facebook, it's everything is that they need is is there, and they can find that. And then there's the core focus of the website. If somebody misses the tweets or Facebooks, it's all great. Just there. Brilliant. Well, hopefully, if you're listening and you want to know more news, then get yourself on social media and make sure you're followed, subscribed, and all of those different things. And uh, try and catch the show. I'm seeing the show in uh, about two weeks, I think, isn't it now? Yeah. yeah. So I'm really excited. I'm really Thank looking you so forward much. to it. Thank so you. have a wonderful time down in the West Country. Thank you. It'd be great to see some old friends. Actually. Yes, lovely. I've got like, one of my um, very good friends, Konstantinos Tomides, has works at Exeter now. He moved there about a year ago, so and I haven't seen him for about a year, so I really miss him. I miss you, Konstantinos. <laughs> <laughs> but we were colleagues, but he works at Exeter University, like, oh, performance great. department. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, he's a voice specialist. Ah. Uh, actor training and voice, and he runs the voice studies. I feel like journal. I've seen the name. Somewhere. Maybe, yeah. Mm. He moved. He'd never. Yeah, he's just he moved down there about a year ago, back okay. this time last year. So, yeah, you might bump into him. I don't know. He's basically very possibly. There, so. I'm going back to Exeter in October at the ah. Signet. Well, if you do Theater. see him, say hello. <laughs> I will, of course, absolutely. Yes. Thank well, you have so a wonderful much. time, and I'm really looking forward to coming and experience. This is the other trouble, isn't it? You mm. say seeing is mm. not an appropriate term anymore. So, how do you say oh, I'm going to see a piece of theatre? It's like mm. no, I'm going to experience a piece. You're going to be in it. I'm piece going to be in it. Yeah. But there's there's no good way yet of saying it. So I think we need to come up with some mm. new vocabulary for what it means to attend and go to a piece of immersive performance. <laughs> That's true, true. A new art form really requires a new vocabulary. Exactly. And we're so early in it is taking it's gonna mm. take its time. It's gonna take its time. And I think the term immersive will be 
challenged quite soon, I think. There's lots of people who are challenging that term for mm. a kind of more appropriate terminology, potentially, but we'll see. Okay. It's a good place to leave that. Right. Cause Thank you so much. I know you must Thank be Thank you. It's been a delight. Crazy busy. It's been wonderful to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode. So Tate is now based in Birmingham and this episode has made it to you finally from the midst of the moving chaos that I am currently surrounded by and you can probably hear in my voice I currently have a stinking cold to boot. So I'm going to be taking up a post at the University of Birmingham with the Theatre Arts Department in September so I'm really excited about that and I'm really looking forward to getting involved in the West Midlands immersive scene. I would love to hear any recommendation for folk to chat to or for pieces for me to go and see. So please do get in touch and let me know. Uh, you can email me on talkingaboutimmersivetheatre at gmail.com. You can tweet me on at Tate Podcast or you can Facebook message me. Um, I'm going to continue to release the Brighton material for the next few months until things have settled down for me. So again, not entirely sure what I'm going to put out next month, but it will definitely be something that I recorded during the Brighton Fringe Festival. So until next month, bye.